Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and welcome to the final episode in this series. My guest again today is Oliver Soden, who's the author of the extraordinary new book, Masquerade, The Lives of Noel Coward. If you missed the previous episodes in this series, you may want to catch up with those before embarking on this one. And before we begin, I want to thank all of our Patron Club members, such as Mark Stanton, whose generous support helps make this podcast possible. If you would like to help support the creation of Broadway Nation, I'll have information at the end of the episode about how you too can become a patron. And now let's look into the final chapters of both Noel Coward's life and Oliver Soden's acclaimed new biography. Here we go! Because this podcast is mostly focused on musical theater, we now enter a period I'm very happy to talk about where Coward does three Broadway musicals pretty much in a row, which is quite interesting. Again, he seems to shift gears in a way throughout his life after really never doing a Broadway musical prior to this other than the reviews. He now is doing Broadway book musicals in the Golden Age style, all of them which have, I think, tremendous value to them, if not all of them being successful or none of them being wildly successful. I think Sail Away, in hindsight, is more successful than people think about it when you go back and look at the actual run. Yes. It it was just up against a lot of competition in that particular season. And the same thing with High Spirits. Yeah. We're just on the cusp of the early 60s, another great shift in society and a shift in theatrical taste. And Coward is, come 63, 64, going to come back out of the desert. And these musicals in the early 60s catch him on that cusp of his return. The plays come back and he writes one late play that is wonderful and the plays are acclaimed as the work of the greatest living playwright and so on. The musicals, individual songs, yes, but never quite, you know, it's not My Fair Lady, it's not The King and I. They don't reach that level. And Sail Away is probably the best of the three, the other two being an adaptation of his great comedy Blythe Spirit, which becomes High Spirits, which he directed, I think, but didn't actually contribute any material towards. It's two other people, isn't it? It is, although I think he wrote some of the lyrics. Exactly. And then he adapts a Terence Rattigan play into a musical called The Girl Who Came to Supper, which is slightly ruined by Kennedy's assassination. It not being brilliant that there's a song about regicide (laughs) in the middle of the musical that had to be cut and their first night coincided with JFK's murder and so on. But Sail Away, you can listen to the recording. It has that sort of brash, blousy Broadway sound, you know, every remnant of operetta gone. And of course, it also has Elaine Stritch. They christened me, me. 
My tiny heart is frozen, but heaven forbid that I should shirk the work that I have chosen. To be a professional pepper upper isn't anyone's cup of tea. But I've wit and guile and a big false smile, and the tourists rely on me. That's quite, quite true. They always do. They're crazy about me. First dreadful day, I stand them in line. She stands them in line. I keep them in line. She keeps them in line. I stand them in line and say, If you're mad, keep to be cultural. I'm the gal with whom you should roll. I can show you every ruin from Jerusalem to Greece, and also quite a few between Antibes and Nice. You can't live without antique pots. I'll find lots for you to take home. If you long to take bad photographs of classical debris, come to me. Come to me. If you want to crouch in churches till you water on the knee, come to me. Poor fools, come to me. There were initially, as it were, two lead parts. There was the kind of wisecracking stretch sassy middle-aged woman part and there was a romantic lead sung by an opera singer from the Met. Again it's a sign that the births of these plays are not easy for him in the way they once had been. They go through so many different iterations. People are being fired, people are being brought in and eventually he fires the opera singer and knits the two characters together into this show role for Elaine Stritch who of course could carry Sail away on her shoulders and they love one another and they sort of link in their sadness. I mean Elaine Stritch is in love with a homosexual actor. She stymied by a religious upbringing and she sees the unhappiness in Coward. She called him the unhappiest man she ever met and he saw this in her, I think. But he gives us some wonderful numbers in it. I found a little cafe on the beach with a terrace overlooking the sea. Will you have dinner with me tonight? It is strictly against the rules for me to dally, hobnob or fraternise with any of the passengers. What time? Meet me here at 8.30. Okay, Johnny. Okay, baby. This is not a day like any other day. This is something special and apart. Something to remember when the coldness of December chills my heart. Something very strange is happening to me. Every face I see seems to be smiling. All the sounds I hear, the buses changing gear, suddenly appear to be beguiling. Nobody is melancholy, nobody is sad. Not a single shadow on the sea. Some magician's spell has made this magic start. I feel I want to hold each shining moment in my heart. Something strange and gay on this enchanted day seems to be. Who?
you see, it's a play about sort of missed opportunities and middle-aged love, and that is still quite daring, I think, for musicals where we are used to nubile young couples falling into each other's arms at the end. I suppose there's, I mean, Sail Away is set on a cruise ship. There's something of Reno Sweeney and Anything Goes to this character for Elaine Stritch. But there's a song called Later Than Spring, meaning that their love for one another is autumnal, that I think is beautiful and very moving. And then, of course, she has great comic numbers like Why Do the Wrong People Travel and a number about foreign phraseology and, and so on. And the title number, which, as I say, is recycled, but it's a brilliant song. I I love it. I think it's so well done. I love listening to that album, both albums, the British cast and the American cast, which are slightly different, have slightly different material in them. It sounds like a hit. It sounds like a big Broadway smash from the 1960s. You say that he was writing in a different, more modern key, more redolent of Richard Rogers and Frank Lesser. Yeah. And Peter Matz is doing the arrangements and the orchestrations for this. Yes. Well, and all you have to do is think of or listen to the sound that Gertrude Lawrence makes when she sings, which you can hear online, or Peggy Wood. And then you hear Elaine Stritch. And, you know, there are centuries between them, not literally. Right. But, you know, people still sound like Elaine Stritch when in Sondheim or whatever. They don't still sound like Gertrude Lawrence. So it is this gear change into a world of the musical or or just the world of the theatre that you can still touch somehow. Why do the wrong people travel, travel, travel when the right people stay back home? What compulsion compels them and uh, who the hell tells them to drag their clans to Zanzibar instead of staying quiet in Omaha, the Taj Mahal and the Grand Canal and the sunny French Riviera would be less oppressed if the Middle West would settle for somewhere rather nearer. Please do not think that I criticize or cavil at a genuine urge to roam. But why When the right people stay back home and mind their business. When the right people stay back home with Cinerama. When the right people stay back home. I'm merely asking why the right people stay back home. I think someone should revive Sail Away. I think Imelda Staunton would be wonderful in Sail You know, anyone who can sing Mama Rose in Gypsy can do the lead in, in Sail Away. I've seen a concert production of Sail Away where they sort of roughly did the book to it. The story is very unsatisfying. Yeah. The songs are terrific. The character is terrific. But I wonder if this change made at the last minute out of town was the right idea, but then he didn't have time to actually finish it or to fully realise that. It's very last minute. There's something about Sail Away, which I say from a position of ignorance, because I've never seen it even in concert, where it's not the sum of its parts. You know, every individual number is brilliant, and yet it doesn't kind of add up 
in the way anything goes adds up. I mean, there'd probably be a case of handing it over to, I don't know, Styles and Drew or something, as Mary Poppins was handed over to Styles and Drew for a good kick up the butt, you know, for a good yeah. sort of shake up. And it could probably be improved. Because, of course, Coward is old by this point. I mean, okay, only 63, but he's ill and he's tired and he doesn't have the sort of energy and commitment. And, of course, the young Coward did not revise because the plays tumbled from him rather brilliantly put together. So it's not in his nature as a writer to tinker because he has such self-belief to a fault really in his own creations that can damage the plays. I mean, I don't think The Girl Who Came to Supper is particularly ever going to survive. High spirits I've never seen. What peculiar obsessions inspire those processions of families from Houston, Tex With all those cameras around their necks They will take a train or an aeroplane For an hour on the Costa Brava And they'll see Pompeii on the only day When it's up to its molten lava It would take years to unravel, ravel, ravel Every impulse that makes them wrong but why, oh, why do the wrong people travel when the right people stay back home with all that Kleenex when the right people stay back home with Dr. Brothers when the right people stay back home with all those Kennedys when the right people stay back home won't someone tell me why the right I said the right Don't go away. Oliver and I will be back with more Broadway Nation right after this quick break. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Thanks to Factors' menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite, Vegetarian, Factors' fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make everyday delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. With no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. 
With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BN50 at factormeals.com slash BN50, as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today. Let's talk about The Girl Who Came to Supper. That's based on a Terrence Radican play, which is interesting that he's now sort of taking one of his younger rivals' plays and turning it into a musical. Yeah, I think it's a gesture of loyalty to Radigan. And what is interesting is that Radigan absolutely suffers from the same thing that Card suffers from with the arrival of the angry young men. He is cast out into the desert of unfashionability by dint of writing about the upper class and being thought rather sort of gentle and fey. Um, he is none of these things. Howard comes back. Rattigan never did. He lived out his last days on Bermuda, earning a lot of money from films and so on, and actually supporting young playwrights such as Joe Orton, whom he funded. But it doesn't come back. So I think it's, a you know, as soon as you're both out in the cold together, you're not rivals for success. You're united in failure. And this bonds Rattigan and Coward, and they're united in their sexuality, of course. Um, so I think it's a gesture of loyalty. But what is so interesting, Coward does this quite a lot. He breaks new ground without realising it and then goes back onto the old ground again. There's no upward trajectory to his career, by which I mean that Sail Away, as it were, cracks the Broadway feel, finally. The Girl Who Came to Supper is based on a play, I mean, it's been filmed with Marilyn Monroe as well, that is sheer froth. It's Ruritanian romance. It's like the Viennese romances, Austro-Hungarian romances that were big in Coward's youth. It's a total retrograde step. I've been invited to a party. Everyone will say who's that pretty girl as they see me swirl on the floor. And before the night is through, I'll be drinking champagne out of everyone's shoe. People will murmur, but she's charming. What a lovely smile, what a sense of style Nobody will guess that my dress is the one that I wear in C3 Then the whole royal court will agree That the bell of the ball is me The most entrancing waltz will be the waltz The prince will dance with me And as we're floating cheek to cheek The pressure of his hand will make me understand to speak guests will cheer and cry bravo as around and round and round we'll go and when the music comes to an end he'll say hey you found a friend 
it's back to the operetta world, basically. Exactly, and and musically maybe slightly different by dint of the orchestration and so on. But um, I mean, it's no advance on Sail Away, and arguably a, a step backwards. And the difference between Florence Henderson, who was a wonderful performer, but now you have a soprano star as opposed to a Elaine Stritch yeah. melting yeah. Broadway star. I've been invited to a party. And when they've at last played the final dance, someone will advance. And I'll wait till the stately limousine drives me back to the sunrise to Camberwell Green. And when I ride home to Milwaukee, Mom will have a fit when she reads the bit saying that I dance with a prince. And it's in then she'll tell all the neighbors with glee that the bell of the ball was me. High Spirits is written by Hugh Martin and Timothy Gray, two much younger songwriters who've had yep. some success. As I understand it, they write this without getting permission originally or at least acquiring the rights, which is a scary thing to do. I've been through that situation. Then have to present it to Coward to try to convince him to let them do this musical. Yes. And he is quite taken with it and agrees to direct it as well. He does. You better love me while you may. Tomorrow I may fly away I want your gentle touch Your continental touch Your elemental touch You want me to oh, I know that you do You better love me while I'm here I have been known to does. And of course, oh dear, I mean, again, I haven't seen it, but the play on which it is based is so impeccably put together. In some ways, I think there is a clash between wanting to make a musical out of a script where every word is important and the rhythm and the structure and the through line and all the rest of it. And of course, by this time, it allows for a massive cameo star role for Madame Arcati, the fortune teller who brings a wife back from the dead. And where in the play, Coward had always intended her not to be a scene stealing main part and it was originally done by Margaret Rutherford who was not famous until she did Arcati you know it, it untips the play even now when the straight play is revived with Angela Lansbury or whoever Jennifer Saunders the balance is ever so slightly wrong in High Spirits the same you have Cicely Courtnidge a star of musical comedy of Noel's youth who did it I think on Broadway no uh, B. Lilly did it on Broadway oh sorry so yeah Beatrice Lilly on Broadway so Cicely Courtnidge did it in London Children, tell this poor benighted child the way we let the spirits help us. Every time you get the chance, throw yourself into a trance. Good show. You need no drinks, you need no smokes, you need no aspirin in your cokes. No Benzedrine 
in your Ovaltine. Just go, go, go into your trance. No opium or cocaine kicks. You don't need heroin for a fix. No me and you smoking tea for two. Just go, go, go into your trance. At the least, it's the most. Going under is a wonder, it's insane. It's way in when you're on. It's like crazy when that haziness is blacking out your brain. No mescaline or sectinol. You don't need none of that jazz at all. For ecstasy to the nth degree. Just go, 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 go into your And again, rehearsals are just full of cowards screaming at Beatrice Lilly and Beatrice Lilly getting her husband to come in and scream at Coward. And it's funny, it was nominated for a lot of Tony Awards in America where it did reasonably well, but it's again not a smash hit. And in England, it's a disaster. Although one thing that's always amused me about it is that in the chorus was a young actor called Christopher Walken who goes on to become this massive Hollywood star. And Coward apparently, I only found this out after I published the book, so it's not in the book, comes up to this rather beautiful youth who's wearing a rather tight-fitting T-shirt and says to Christopher Walken, that's a very nice T-shirt. And Christopher Walken is stage-struck and star-struck and can think of nothing to say. And he suddenly says, yes, well, it's red. And Coward says, well, it's been a very exciting day for us all, and then moves on. <laughs> but I, I like this little meeting of two amazingly different people in a flop musical. And of course, when it comes back into the West End, I mean, is it the same year as My Fair Lady? If it isn't, it's very close. No, I think we're later now. Aren't we the same year as Funny Girl and... Uh, 64, isn't it's it? 64. So, it's the same year as Fiddler on the Roof and Funny Girl, and it's got severe it has competition. competition. Exactly. And of course, by 64... Britain, more than America, is rediscovering Coward as a playwright. So the musical seems sort of not quite in the same world because 64 is the year that Hay Fever, the early comedy, is back at the National Theatre, the newly formed National Theatre under Laurence Olivier. It's the first play by a living playwright to be so honoured. The cast has Maggie Smith, Derek Jacobi, Lynn Redgrave, Edith Evans, and it just shoves Coward back into the limelight. But really as a playwright, you know, the reviews have gone, the musicals have mainly gone, the songs are very popular on their own terms, but you have to think of High Spirits being dropped into that conception of Coward. By the time it gets to Britain. Yeah. So he's already on this incredible reversal of fortune has happened to him with this yeah. production of Hay Fever. Yes. Private Lives has been revived the year before in a very small theatre in North London, done in almost modern dress, you know, 60s outfits, and they danced the twist rather than the Charleston. And people had really forgotten about Private Lives. And it was done with very young actors, and it was thought to really speak to the 1960s. And of course, the 60s and 20s parallels are there for the table. It's interesting that the 60s is the period where Coward is sort of welcomed back. And a lot of the pop groups of the 60s, not the Beatles so much, but the Kinks particularly, and then moving forward, people such as Jarvis Cocker and all the rest of it, were really starting to profess Coward as an influence, you know, to call him the original pop star, to combine new music with a sort of more old-fashioned retro world of jazz and the music hall and so on. There's a band, it's a wonderful name, the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band, which is very, you know, was a big thing in the 60s and was very coward-esque in its combining of sort of avant-garde pop 
with the music hall and the parlor song and all the rest of it. So Coward fits suddenly in a way he he hadn't. And that cast you mentioned, you know, sounds like a dream to see Edith Evans and Lynn Redgrave and Derek Jacobi and Maggie Smith all together in one play doing Hay Fever. Unbelievable. And of course, Edith Evans was a little too old for Judith Bliss and was fading a tad. And she used to lock herself in her room and refuse to go and perform until it was mentioned to her that this young actress called Maggie Smith was really doing very well standing in as Judith Bliss, Evan's part, at which point she shot onto the stage very quickly. But she had wonderful trouble with her lines. This gave rise to the coward's famous quip where Edith Evans kept saying, there's a line in Hay Fever, on a clear day, you can see Marlowe. Evans in rehearsal would say, on a very clear day, you can see Marlowe. And Coward, who was attentive to the rhythm of his script, did not like this addition of the word very. And he said to her at one stage, losing his temper, Edith, the line is, on a clear day, on a very clear day, you can see Marlowe and Beaumont and Fletcher, which which goes down in theatrical law. But I do believe, unlike many of his famous quips, he actually said it. And of course, Maggie Smith understood that the funniest lines in Coward are the lines that look nothing on the page. Mm-hmm. And famously, in the third act, she comes down for breakfast after this terrible night, this weekend away in the country, and she lifts the lid of what's available for breakfast and takes some food. And the line in the script is, this haddock is disgusting which is not funny. And Maggie Smith on the first night said, well, this haddock is disgusting. At which point it brought the house down. And every review, I've read them, mentioned it. She just got his humour and she and her then husband, Robert Stevens, did Private Lives with great success as well. You said this, but I want to underline this. This is the play that opens the National Theatre. Hamlet opened it, but it's the first play by a living playwright to be staged. To be chosen to be in what is being positioned as Britain's National Theatre. Then at the the old Vic rather than the the new building um, on the South Bank now. I mean, what a trumpet blast for him. And Laurence Olivier is the producer, whatever, I don't know what his title was, is artistic director. The artistic director director of the National Theatre. And this is his choice. And of course, he has a long relationship with Coward. Yes, going right back to the premiere of Private Lives in 1930, where he played the other male character, Victor, when he was just about on the up as an actor. And Coward was an established star. And Olivier, I mean, there's been talk that they were lovers. I'm not sure I completely believe it, although I'm sure Cowb was very erotically dazzled by Olivier's looks and talent and so on. But what Olivier wanted from Cowd was not a lover, but a mentor. He said time and time again that the debt he owed to Cowd for teaching him professional technique was huge. It's very interesting because Olivier, people would have seen, was the great star in the war of Henry V, which had been made into this astonishing patriotic film at a time of war and then was able for a long time, as Coward was not, to align himself with the new generation. I mean, Olivier was famous for creating Archie Rice, the clapped-out music hall singer in Osborne's The Entertainer. So Olivier was, in a way, more adept at moving with the times than Coward was, but eventually his loyalty is such, and his admiration is genuine, that he can bring Coward or play a large part in bringing Coward back into the mainstream and the limelight. It's interesting you mentioned Archie Rice, because that's a part that Howard could have played sort of yes, like... exactly in fact i call a chapter about coward the entertainer in a curious way because that play the entertainer is about the downfall of england and coward certainly believed in that coward himself as one of the short plays in tonight at 8 30 had done a play about clapped out vaudeville entertainers that he'd done with gertrude lawrence called red, red pepper. pepper yeah exactly 
exactly. Red that, that has been recorded and you can hear them doing the whole thing. And Coward would have been a wonderful Archie Rice. I really believe it. So the end of Coward's life, unlike so many others, is not a downward spiral. It is this series mm. of triumphs in a way that yes. unexpected yeah. to have this late resurgence. So not only does Hay Fever become a giant hit and private lives and the plays start getting all kinds of respect that they didn't have before, he is able to write not only one new play, but three new plays that yes. he will star in and yes. have a sort of final triumph as both a playwright and a performer. Yeah, this is Sweet in Three Keys which is being done at a tiny, brilliant theatre in West London next year for the first time as a trio in a long while. So I'm excited to see them fit. An amazing thing. I mean, Coward is in really serious ill health by this time, 40 a day since he was 14. Heart tendons snapping and the whole thing. He writes one two-act play called Song at Twilight that is to be combined in rep with two short plays, one deeply tragic called Shadows of the Evening and one essentially a farce called Come into the Garden More. There are three characters in each played by the same three actors of which in the first production he was one. And Shadows of the Evening is an amazing territory for Coward in that it's unusual, really. It's about an old dying man being torn between his wife and his mistress. And then the comedy is about an elopement. And then the really brave and I think very fine sort of Ibsen-like play is Song at Twilight, which is autobiographical to a degree, not in other ways, and open and brave in that it's about a, an eminent writer, Sir Hugo Latimer, more based on Somerset Maugham, really, than Noel Card, who is married to a German whose first husband, I think, is said to have died in the concentration camp. So already you see we're not on typical Card territory. But out of the blue comes a former lover who is trying to sell their love letters as blackmail, but who accuses him of essentially being gay and having lived his life as a cover-up. You've been queer as a coot all your life, she says. For a young playwright to do that, a left-leaning, daring theatre such as the Royal Court, might by 1965 have been par for the course. For the doyen of British theatre to do it in a commercial glitzy production in the West End was quite another. And Coward was calling quite openly at this stage in the press for Wolfenden and the legalisation in Britain. So it's a very daring play on that score, very sad play, very complicated play, because it gives a lot of dignity to the women. It gives a lot of dignity to Hugo's wife. It gives a lot of dignity, actually, to the marriage even though it's not a sexual marriage. And that's a very interesting thing, because I think of all the wives of gay men that Coward had known in his life, Rachel Kempson, who was married to Michael Redgrave, his ex-lover, Linda Porter, who was married to Cole Porter. And these are not platonic, though they might be, meaningless, disguised relationships. Jack Wilson and Natasha Paley, too. They had a certain loving, domestic, companionable dignity. And I don't know of many plays that really explore that relationship without simply writing off the wife as a beard which I think is the term. So it's very interesting on that score, but it's a play about being true to yourself, which of course Coward was more than his characters, because Coward never did marry for disguise. It's moving and upsetting and autumnal and moonlit. Again, I haven't seen it, so I'm looking forward to, to doing so. And of course he did it, these three plays in rep, you know, in terrible, terrible ill health. It's wonderful stamina and belief, and they got mainly wonderful reviews, and he was sort of welcomed back, and that was the last thing uh, he did on the 
the stage. The physical feat of it, it's like yeah. doing Angels in America. This is two nights of plays, three characters, three different characters that he's One playing. One American, so one very different. It's quite something, the stamina of it. He's playing opposite Irene Wirth and Lily Palmer. So that's, yeah. again, yeah. another dream cast to go back and see the three of them on stage together yeah. would be phenomenal. Yes. I've never oh, seen I'm... that play either. It's totally on my bucket list of plays to see because it just sounds and reads so amazingly interesting. Well, it's where I think the comparison really is with Ibsen. In fact, one of the characters is called Hilda, which is a, a name that crops up in Ibsen a lot. And there are a lot of plays in Ibsen, Pillars of the Community, The Master Builder, The Lady from the Sea, where these sort of furies from your past return like a Greek play and lay out your past in front of you and demand a sort of reckoning. The character that Lily Palmer, I think, played in that and Vanessa Redgrave played in a revival that made a big case for the play is one of those Ibsen-esque women who return from the past. It's also set in a hotel up a mountain, which is an amazing, I mean, those last four Ibsen plays get increasingly higher up the mountain. <laughs> John Gabriel Borkman, When We Dead Awaken. And I think all of that is there in the card play as well. During this resurgence, he finally receives the knighthood that he has so long yes. been lobbying for, hoping for, denying that he really wants, but clearly is something that's important to him. Yeah, and of course, he wanted it from the 1930s. It makes him the first playwright to be knighted since Arthur Wing Pinero in something like 1909. It was not a given in the way it's slightly more expected now for playwrights to be knighted. And of course, his court cases during the war for diddling foreign currency had really put paid to it. And possibly there was some homophobia in there as well, though it's worth saying that Churchill's private secretary, Edward Marsh, was well known by Churchill to be gay and got his knighthood and so on. So who knows? I'm sure there's something of that. But finally, it arrives because Louis Mountbatten, who is Card's great friend, ex-naval commander, viceroy of India, the whole thing, goes straight to the Queen. It was one of the discoveries, actually, of my book, that it went straight to the Queen and it was sorted in 1970, so right towards the end of Card's life. So that final thing is achieved. And he wouldn't go with Graham Payne on his arm as his partner. He went with his two friends, Gladys Calthrop and Joyce Carey. Very interesting. It's kind of sad in a way, but understandable from who he was and what his... Well, it's funny, isn't it, that one pattern of our conversation today that I've seen more clearly than when I was inside the book is that Coward has an openness in his work that he doesn't permit himself in his life. So you come straight out of Song at Twilight, and then he commissions a biography from the critic Sheridan Morley, which comes out in 1969. You can still get it, A Talent to Amuse. And he won't permit Morley to even hint at Coward's sexuality, quote, because there are still a few old ladies in Worthing who don't know, unquote. But how could you have seen Song at Twilight and thought otherwise? So it's interesting that in his private life, he has to maintain just that, a private life. Again, amazingly, he has sort of an incredible final night with the opening of O Coward in New York, a review yeah. of his work. And there's been a review prior to that in London of Cowardy Custard, which is also yes. a great album to listen to. That has on it what I nominate as the greatest ever performance of the Coward song by the wonderful Patricia Routledge. Quite for no reason, I'm here for the season and high as a kite. With Maud at Cap Ferra, which couldn't be right. Everyone's here and frightfully gay, and nobody cares what people say, though the Riviera seems really much queerer than Rome at its height. <gasps> Yesterday night, I 
went to a marvellous party with Nuno and Nada and Nell. It was in the fresh air and we went as we were and we stayed as we were, which was hell. Poor Grace started dancing at midnight and didn't stop singing till four. We knew the excitement was bound to begin when Laura got blind on Dubonny and Gin and scratched her veneer with a Cartier pin. I couldn't have liked it more. Oh, I've been to a marvellous party. I must say the fun was intense. We all had to do what the people we knew would be doing a hundred years hence. Here Cecil arrived wearing armour, <laughs> some shells and a black feather boa. Poor Millicent wore a surrealist comb, made of bits of mosaic from St. Peter's in Rome. But the weight was so great that she had to go home. I couldn't have liked it more. And she does I Went to a mar Marvellous Party better than anybody, including Coward, and I gather Coward sort of admitted that to her because she's still going at 94, I think. <laughs> um, it's wonderful, that performance. I mean, anybody who hasn't heard it should seek it out. It's superb. But Oh, Coward is a sort of similar thing. Coward's life story told through songs and everything. And it's his last great public appearance in America in early 73, I think. Who's his date to go to see this? This is not the opening of the show, but this is a special performance for him. Yes, one of those Sunday Broadway performances so everybody's free and it's freezing cold and everybody's in their fur. At one point it was rumoured that Coward would turn up with Jacqueline Kennedy and Nassus and he wanted to go with the actress Catherine Cornell who was ill and in the end he turns up with Marlena Dietrich on his arm and he is dying essentially at 73 and that theatre which I don't think is there anymore, to get to the auditorium you had to go up a very tall steep staircase and there was something irresistibly metaphorical to me about Marlene Dietrich, who was the daughter of a German policeman, I think, and did not come from money or the theatre. And Noel Coward, who, as we know, was born in a little house in West London to not very much money. There's something brilliant about the two of them sort of doing their climb as they had throughout their life and getting to the top by dint of sheer effort and discipline. He loved that show. And I say in the book that, you know, if somebody had bombed the theatre <laughs> that evening, the obituary pages of the New York Times would have been vast because I mean, everybody who was everybody was there to sort of say goodbye, really, which is what it was. It's almost like a wake in a way, but yeah, it's to yeah. be there for it. And then he flies off to Jamaica and that was the last trip. So describe your final chapter of your book, which I, I would find indescribable, but is very captivating. And I, it's been a little controversial, I think you said. Yeah, I know we talked about it earlier. This was just a means of describing. It so happens, I think Noel Card is one of the only people, really, whose last week on earth has been recorded at length and in detail by absolutely everybody who was there. He was with Cole Leslie and Graham Payne and his American manager, Jeffrey Johnson, for that last week in Jamaica. And he was with his staff, the Jamaican staff, Miguel. All those five people, either to me or to others or in print, have written their account of those last five days, which of course meant I didn't need to put it in any other form. They could simply, as it were in a play, and I write it as a play script, they could simply come onto the stage and tell us about Noel Coward's final 
final days in their own words, including from Miguel, who held him as he died in the house in Jamaica of heart failure on the 26th of March, 1973. And I loved that because I could just disappear. And Coward was there as a sort of presence and absence. And my idea really was that it would be like attending a sort of group conversation about this person that the reader had come to know. It's quite captivating, but bold. I applaud you for that. All the way through these episodes, we've talked about Coward's life being a play and Jamaica being a stage set and how he stage managed his own life. And in some ways, stage managed his own death as well, because he was found face down in a book from his childhood by E. Nesbitt. He left once in the hearse and then they took a wrong turning and had to come back. So he made two exits, you know. And I thought that was a way of conveying it. His life had finally become the play it had always been. This took five years to write this book. On and off. Yes. On and off. But yes. Yeah, like every yeah. book. But still, to arrive at that place where the book is done, it took that long. And it's understandable. It's an incredible subject to tackle in terms of uh-huh. all the yeah. facets of his career. If you're just talking about his career, much less his life. And you've done so brilliantly contextualizing it for us, weaving the history of not just the UK, but America into this book, what's going on in the world and how Coward refers reflects that. Thank you. Yes. You know, it's an impossible question to say, how do you, would you sum up this whole effort that you've made? But you now have a chance to look at it and talk about it repeatedly. What's the legacy, I guess, that you hope will come from this book or that is coming from this book? What's the main purpose behind this book as you see it now? It's very interesting because you say, as I see it now, I mean, I came to like and admire and respect, which are not the same thing at all with one's mm-hmm. subjects, really, and needn't all three be present. And sometimes they're not. Coward much more at the end than I had at the beginning. He was not what I thought he was going to be as a person or as a writer. And I don't say that my book is the only one to have done this. It's a sort of accrual, a compound interest of directors and other biographers and all the rest of it. But if I could A, argue that yes, he was cruel and sharp and self-obsessed and politically haywire on certain topics, but that he was also actually very moral, kind, generous, rather decent decent sort of a person, if that isn't a feeble world, then I think it would have been worth doing. I think the cruelty and the bitchiness and all of that is only one facet. There's a sort of morality to Coward that is very interesting. As a creative figure, I mean, the life speaks for itself. It was one of the lives of the century. It it touched so many things. But the legacy can't be the life, which is now over. The legacy has to be the work, which is, of course, patchy. But I think he wrote five of the enduring comic plays in the language which is an amazing achievement. And I think at least 10 other of the plays are fascinating in their own right and the movie scripts and a lot of the lyrics and the songs. And I think if I could show through this book that actually these plays, however frothy and souffle-esque they are, actually have really profound things to say about how to live and how to love against society, against convention, how to be true to your own sense of what love and life actually are, about class, if the ephemerality of certain trends in society about having a party but knowing the party will end, all these things, I think he said for the first time or said them in his own particular way for the first time, and that that is a huge legacy. And I think listening to what he has to say, particularly at a period where not unlike the 1920s and the 1960s, the future seems very bleak and the past seems quite bleak and the young are sort of trapped in the way Coward's own generation was trapped. I think listening to what he has to say about all these things is 
is very valuable and as valuable as laughing at his jokes. And I guess the real genius to him is that he says all those things without saying them at all, because you're too busy laughing at the jokes to hear the profundity until the laughter stops. That's it, isn't it? Coward is very good at the laughter and then at the laughter stopping. And what was left, just as he was good at saying the party was always going to end, but that he was always the life and soul of it while it was happening. So all of that is a very roundabout and clotted way of just saying, I truly admire him and hope others will read the book and come to admire him too. Simple as that. I'm always drawn to the figures who are subversive, who make big, important statements without the audience completely understanding that that's what happened, yeah, at least on the so. surface. Those are the artists, yeah. I think, that are the most interest to me and I think have the most effect. And I think that's why it's been quite hard to make the case for Card as subversive, because in so many other ways, he can seem very conservative, even reactionary. In fact, I say in the book, he's a radical conservative, if that isn't too neat. It's very, very easy to catch Card being a genius. It's very difficult to catch him being profound. Profundity is allowed in on the sly. And that is radical and subversive. And he said some very radical things, but it's all hidden. The mask is always on. And that's skill. This has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining us on Broadway Nation. This is a really great book, and I am so happy that you've been able to devote so much time to us. Well, and you to me, it's been a treat and indulgent on my behalf. So thank you very much. Thank you. I truly appreciate it and look forward to seeing what happens in this year of coward that we have coming up. That'll be very interesting. Yeah. yeah. The part is over now The dawn is drawing very nigh The candles gutter The starlight leaves the sky It's time for little girls and boys To hurry home to bed For there's a new day waiting just ahead. Now here's the information about how you too can become a patron of Broadway Nation. A donation of just $7 a month will not only keep Broadway Nation rolling along, it will also provide you with exclusive access to the complete unedited versions of many of the interviews that you hear on this podcast. And all patrons will receive special shout-outs and acknowledgments of your vital support for Broadway Nation. To join, simply go to broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech that's broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech. Or click the link in the show notes to this episode. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. Life is sweet, but time is fleet beneath the magic of the moon. Dancing time may seem sublime, but it is ended. All too soon The thrill has gone To linger on Might spoil it anyhow Let's creep away from the day For the party's over
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.